Good morning again. My name is still Joe, and I guess I now I'm in preacher mode. <clears throat> Hello to those of you on Zoom also haven't said hi to you this morning yet. Good to see you. We can hear you singing in spirit or something. On the day Jesus died, the temple veil was torn in two. This is an artist rendition. The gospel accounts of Jesus' death are pretty understated about this event, actually. It's almost a footnote detail in the crucifixion story, which is understandable. There were a lot of things going on that day. A festival, a murderous mob, squads of intimidating Roman soldiers, some kind of unknown solar event where the sun grew strangely dark in the middle of the day. And at the moment when Jesus died, one gospel account says the earth shook and the rocks were split the graveyards were open and dead bodies were raised. Bizarre stuff. And in that same moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this was no minor curtain. Tradition says that the curtain was 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall and four inches thick. It separated the inner room of the temple from the inner inner room, the Holy of Holies. You've heard about the Holy of Holies, with statues of golden angels 15 feet tall, the sacred Ark of the Covenant containing the holiest relics of the people of God. To the ancient Hebrews, this was God's throne room. This was where God lived, the umphalos, the umbilical cord of the world, the place where heaven touched earth, the sacred center of the universe. Nobody went into the Holy of Holies, just the high priest once a year on the holiest day of Yom Kippur. The high priest would approach the sacred center of the cosmos, come begging at the throne of God, asking for forgiveness for the people. As you may know, the priest would have bells tied at his waist, a rope tied to his foot, so that if he was struck dead by God's glory, the other priest would know and could pull his body out. Serious stuff. For the ancient Jews, the Shekinah presence of God, the sacred fire, the face-melting, sacrosanct essence of the Holy One was real, was alive, and it showed up in that particular place. That was what lived behind the curtain. And that glory, that spirit was released when the veil was torn. I've seen way too many fantasy movies, so I can picture this happening as mist escaping through the rifts into the darkness, or maybe the light comes blazing out through the loosening threads as vague spirits zoom around the room. Or maybe it was just like this, an empty room, the tattered veil to be discovered later that evening by a young priest on custodial duty. However you read the story, the meaning is clear. The veil is torn, the way is open, the barrier between the sinful and the sacred has vanished. God is out of the box. For those who see deeply, there is only one reality. By reason of the incarnation, there is no truthful distinction between sacred and profane. That's the third tenet in the alternative orthodoxy series we've been studying this month. And if you would like to read all of them, they're on the back of the bulletin still. Is profane a word that makes sense out of church contexts? I don't know if people, people other than me um, talk like that. Profane means vulgar, disgusting, rough, indecent, nasty. Profane as in profanity. 
There is no true distinction between the sacred and the profane. But still, watch your language. We are in church. There's a lot of different directions we could go with this one. But for today, I want to talk about altars. I know, very religious word. You probably don't have a lot of altars in your life, in your homes, workspaces, your retirement hangout spots. Altar is well, it's all kinds of things. It's kind of my shorthand for sacred spaces of all kinds. A prayer nook, a shrine, a temple, holy ground of all shapes and sizes. The ancient Celts built altars of various sorts at the thin places of the world, the spot where, for some reason, the distance between the spiritual and the physical realms draws close. As I said, the Holy of Holies in ancient Judaism was that kind of altar. It was the umbilical cord connecting heaven and earth. And the incarnation, the life and death and revelation of Jesus the Christ, blew the doors off of that altar, unboxing God. For there is no truthful distinction between sacred and profane. In the words of Barbara Brown Taylor, earth is so thick with divine possibility that it is a wonder we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on altars. I like that. It's good news for almost everyone. I have to feel bad for the guy on veil tending duty that afternoon. Could have sworn I ordered the organic wool veil, just like you asked. We don't have any record outside of the gospel stories of the temple veil being torn, which is understandable. They wouldn't have written this down. It would have been a very embarrassing, threatening event, not something for the history books. You can feel the tension for the temple priests. They had built this beautiful space. Now it's empty. What purpose does it serve anymore? which is an entirely unique experience in the history of religious establishments, I'm sure. What do we do when God is out of the box that we have built? That tension runs through the Bible. A couple of stories. First, Jacob's Wilderness Retreat Center. You know Jacob, the founder of the nation of Israel, father of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Abraham's younger grandson. That younger piece is important because the elder son was the only one that mattered in those days. Jacob's twin brother Esau was the older by a few measly seconds, and that meant that Esau got everything, the birthright, the inheritance, all of God's blessing. Some of you know the story. Jacob tried to manipulate Esau into giving up his rights as the oldest child. Jacob even dressed up like Esau to trick their blind father into performing the ritual blessing on the wrong son. But let's be real, these things, they don't transfer. Jacob knew that this was futile. There was no blessing left for him. The terms of the religion were clear. The way to God ran through the oldest son. If Jacob wanted God's blessing, he was going to have to kneel and serve Esau, the guy that he just tried to cheat. So Jacob ran away. He ran into the wilderness, knowing that there was nothing for him. He hoped to make it back to his grandfather's homeland, the place that Abraham had left in order to find God in the land of Canaan. Jacob was undoing that story, going in reverse, leaving God behind, he thought. But one night, in the middle of nowhere, with only a rock for a pillow, Jacob had a dream. And in that dream, he saw the famous Stairway to Heaven. You know the soundtrack to that one. God came and spoke to Jacob. Even as you're running away, 
you have not left me behind. I will still bless you. I will be with you wherever you go. I will bring you back to the land that will be yours once again. And Jacob woke up assured. God was in this place and I did not know it, he said. So Jacob made an altar out of the rock he had used for a pillow and named that place Bethel, God's house. In the wilderness, outside the camp, outside the box. God was in this place and I did not know it. That's basically the subtitle of the Old Testament. So many examples of God showing up in genuinely profane places, from brothels to slums to Balaam's donkey. We're God's chosen people. But wait a second, somehow God is also over there with them. This is God's holy mountain. Or maybe it's that one. These high places in the wilderness all start to blend together after a while. This holy temple is the sacred center of the cosmos. And yet, when we are forced to leave that place, when we go to exile, in our brokenness, in our pain, God still shows up, even in the belly of the whale. These two streams coexist in the Old Testament. There's the rules, the traditions, the right and holy places, the best time, the only manner in which to meet God properly. And there's God in the wilderness, God coming through the younger son and the foreigner and the supposed harlot. We build boxes for God. God lives outside the box. Most of the time we go back and build another box. That's also the story of the New Testament. Another familiar one to many of us, the transfiguration, which is a fancy word for change. Toward the end of his years as traveling teacher, Jesus took his three favorite students out for a field trip. Peter, James, and John all went with Jesus up a mountain. Not a particularly holy mountain, just a tall one. And at the top of the mountain, Jesus metamorphosized right in front of them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes glowed bright white. And Moses and Elijah showed up, talking with Jesus. This was obviously a spectacle meant to impress the disciples. Moses, the founder of the priesthood, the ultimate figure of religious establishment. And Elijah, the prototypical prophet of the wilderness, the voice of the untamed God outside the box. This is a revelation. It's an opportunity to see deeply as there is one reality. By way of Christ, there's no distinction between the sacred and the profane. God in the box and God out of the box, somehow held together by the Christ. So Peter, as you'd expect, says, this is great. Let's build another box. He offers to build three tabernacles, three altars right there. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Gotta live Peter, love Peter, missing the obvious point as usual. But as I said, this is the whole human story of the Bible. Meet God, mark that space as sacred, build an altar. And then God shows, somewhere else, shows up somewhere else and we go and mark that space as sacred, build another altar over there. It's like a giant cosmic game of Marco Polo or maybe whack-a-mole. God keeps popping up, and we think we have God nailed down. Pun only kind of intended. Peter doesn't actually get to build his mountaintop altars this time, though. This time, the voice of God breaks through Peter's noise. This one 
is mine, God says. This is who I am. This is the face of God, as we talked about last week. You don't need a temple. You have Jesus, the Christ, who is everything. Listen to him. As the New Testament writers would go on to understand, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope when you were called. There is one Savior, one faith, one baptism, one God and creator of all, who is over all, who works through all, and is within all. And then, Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. Christ is the altar that makes all spaces sacred space. How are we doing? Everybody following along? Here's the good news. Peter, James, and John didn't exactly get it either. They had this amazing experience of the Christ, and they left the mountain relatively unchanged. It took years for them to come to terms with what they had seen in Jesus that day and every other day. This grand experience did not set them free of the tension. They still needed God to be in boxes. They still needed altars to remind them of what they had seen and the path that they were on. Peter didn't build his tabernacles on the mountain, but he did build a community of followers. Peter started a new religion centered on Jesus. John came to understand, understand Jesus as the word of God made flesh. We have the word. We don't need any more words. So what did John do? Well, he wrote a book about it. Chock full of words describing that reality that God was beyond words. Even when we know that God is beyond our boxes, we still need boxes. Altars still matter. For those who see deeply, there is only one reality. By reason of the incarnation, there's no truthful distinction between sacred and profane. Richard Rohr also says, you have to separate things before you can fittingly unite them. There is no unity unless there's first of all separation. This tenant, this saying is not denying the distinction, it's overcoming the distinction at a deeper level. One more altar story. Thomas Merton was an American Catholic monk famous in the 1950s and 60s for his spiritual writings and social activism. One of the leaders of the anti-war, civil rights, and interfaith movements of the 1960s and 70s. One of his most famous writings describes an experience he had in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. In Louisville at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. Thomas Merton was a monk. His whole life was about separation. His existence was built around distinction between sacred and profane. It was sacred, he, were, he was with the monks, the spiritual stuff that they did, and that was opposed to and separate from the worldly stuff, the profane stuff of the masses. And yet here, in this moment, all of that was dissolved. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. 
I have the immense joy of being human, a member of the race in which God in person became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize what we all are. If only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There's no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this cannot be seen, only believed and understood by a peculiar gift. That's beautiful, if a bit grandiose for a day at the mall. There's no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. It's a very 1960s image. We are stardust. We are golden, getting ourselves back to the garden. Any former hippies in the crowd? I don't want to make eye contact with anybody, but tell me if I've got that one right. My favorite part of this story, though, is that if you go to Louisville today, you'll find a plaque at 4th and Walnut marking the spot where Merton had this vision, a revelation. This is where it happened, where Merton found liberation from an illusory difference. They named the square after him. People travel there to stand where Merton had this burst of insight. I don't know, I think it's a funny thing to put up a plaque about. A sacred spot dedicated to the realization that no spots are sacred because all spots are sacred. Let's build a temple here. Yet again, this is the tension. We still need our boxes, even when we know that God is beyond them. We humans love our plaques, even when the person we're celebrating tells us we don't need plaques. We need markers, and guideposts, and guardrails. We need reminders and rituals. We need rule books. We need separation and distinction, even in service of connection and communion. The altars we make are human. The guideposts that we create are artificial and at times arbitrary. And that doesn't diminish the deeper reality to which they are pointing. Religion lives in th that tension. Right now, by my observation, the capital C church is struggling with that tension. We're feeling that tension in this church these days, I would say. I've been preaching this message or something like it in my own way here for a decade. Talking, I often talk about how God is within us and among us, how God is alive and at work just as much, if not more, out there as in here. I think most of you would agree with that because you haven't kicked me out yet. And I think that truth has long run deep in this place way before I got here. Many of you have built your faith around that reality that God is out there and not only in here. You've filled your lives with it. You've raised your kids with it. You've created your personal habits and patterns and traditions around it. We find God everywhere, in nature, in service, in novels and coffee shops and family reunions and travels, everywhere. And if that's true, if God is everywhere, 
And what are we still doing here in church? That's the tension of the moment, isn't it? A lot of people, especially our younger generations, have discovered God out there even more than they do in here. Some of them haven't shown up in here for a long time, and they're doing okay because they found God out there. What do we do with that? Why do we need church? Why visit the plaque? Why spend time with the rock that marks the spot you had that dream that one time when the whole point of the revelation is that sacred ground is everywhere? I can't argue with that. I don't know if that's good for my job security, though. But if people experience God on Sundays at hockey practice or brunch or bedside Baptist, God bless them. Rest is rest. Inspiration is inspiration. Community is community. The things that people used to get exclusively from church are now available all over the place in our society. As one writer puts it, we are selling water by the river. And yet, we need altars. We need help in learning how to see deeply. Just because everything is spiritual doesn't mean that we always recognize it that way. How do you tell people that they are all walking around shining like the sun? The best description I've heard lately for what we do in church is reminding ourselves of who we are. We need reminders and rituals and habits. We need partners on the journey. We need communion and community. Really, we don't, because there's only one reality and there's no truthful distinction between sacred and profane. But really, we do, because it is so hard to see that there's no truthful distinction between sacred and profane. Church isn't important, except that it is. God is out of the box, but the box itself can help us to see that. So we have here an altar of sorts in this church, in this place. And in this season, we're trying to figure out how to maintain it. Not because it must exist, not because the world desperately needs Wildwood Mennonite Church to exist, but because we would like it to. Not because it's the only place to meet God, but because it's a familiar place. It's a meaningful place to us. This is not the altar, but it's our altar. I hope you hear the freedom in that. I would suggest that the best position to come to our altar is with open hands. Open hands with the gifts that we bring. For this altar to flourish, we will need to invest in it without giving so much to maintaining this altar that we don't have anything left to invest in the goodness that exists outside of this place. So open hands with what we bring and open hands towards the others that share this community. It's not for me to decide what they need. How can we invite and share resources and care for one another without being possessive and presumptive about where and how God is showing up for them? If God is in this place when I did not know it, of course God can be in that place, in their place, when I can't see it. Again, earth is so thick with divine possibility that it is a wonder we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on altars. So watch your step, out there and in here. Friends of this altar, May you find this a good place to rest for a while. May you take off your sandals and dig your toes into the holy ground. And may you know that wherever you go, wherever, wherever 
sacred or profane, you are shining like the sun. Amen.